I titled the message this morning, Ready or Not. Ready or Not. And you'll see why as we read the text. But I'll remind you that last week, Esteban led us through the first half of chapter 12, and he rightly pointed out that the main idea of that text was found in verse 34. Look there, would you? And I'll read it again. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That was the, the main focus of both the passage and the sermon last week. And the idea there was that God is interested in our hearts, right? God is interested in our hearts, which is to say that God is interested in the core of your being, your, your mind, your soul, your body, your heart, all of us. He's interested in that, uh, us being fully devoted to him, to be worshipers of him, rather than being devoted to any other temporal thing that we might be and are often tempted to place our trust in for our life and for our security. Jesus is saying here, we will worship what we treasure. And God desires and deserves our worship. He desires and deserves our worship. Not only is that true, but it's also what's good for us. And I hope, I hope that's coming up out of the pages of the text and, and the, the way in which we're teaching through these passages. That, 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 that God desires our hearts is not just true, but it's what's best for us. To worship the living God is life-giving because he alone is the one who can fully satisfy us and give us life and give us security. It's the fool who believes otherwise. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. It is the fool who believes otherwise, believing that, that there's something or something else that can give you life and give you security. Nothing less than the living God can overcome the curse of death that hangs over every human soul. That's why we need him. Look back at verse 19. This is part of what we covered last week, but this is made clear here. Verse 19 is the attitude of the one who, who is looking elsewhere. And it says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, you can't take it with you. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's foolish. So that's what we talked about last week. This morning as we finish looking at chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus is continuing in that same theme of where our hearts are and what we treasure. But he adds a couple of important details here. The first is this, there are two and really only two kinds of people in the world, those who faithfully trust in him and those who don't, and that's it. There are only two kinds of people, when it, when it all boils down, there's only two categories that matter, do you trust Christ or do you not? 
That's the first thing he's going to kind of teach out for us here. The second thing he wants to convey is this. The time to respond to him is short. The time to respond to him is short. The kingdom of God is coming. And what he's going to begin to reveal to his disciples and to us here is that he is coming back. This is his first appearance. He's coming back a second time to judge those who have not trusted in him and to reward those who have. And so here's what he's asking. Are you ready for that? Are you ready? And the application will be simple. Firstly, pay attention to the reality of this shortness of time. And secondly, urgently respond to his call for your salvation. Okay, So that's where we're headed this morning. He's going to talk to us about these two kinds of people. And then he's going to talk to us about what we need to do to urgently respond. So let me pray, and then we'll begin to read the text and walk through it. Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather together as your people, to sit under your word, to let the words of Christ, Lord, not only land on us, but Lord, I pray to richly dwell within us. Let us hear what our Savior has to say to us, Lord, and Let it cause our hearts to trust more fully in him. Let it cause our lives to be more fully obedient to him, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those who may be here this morning who have not trusted in Christ. Lord, show them your trustworthiness. Show them your supremacy. And show them, Lord, the urgency of your call. Lord, by your spirit, would you draw all of us to respond in faith, and trust in Christ. It's in his name that I pray those things. Amen. All right. So if I had a PowerPoint, the first slide that would go up right now would say, number one, point number one is this. There are two kinds of people, okay? Two kinds of people. But then it would also say, and those two categories are divided by Christ. They're divided by Christ. Let's look together at verse 49 of chapter 12. Jesus says this, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Two kinds of people divided by Christ. Now listen, when you hear that and read that together, verse 51 is a bit shocking, isn't it? He asked the disciples this question, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Answer that for yourselves. If Jesus were to ask you that question, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? What do you think you would say? I think I would say, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Right? Prince of peace, right? You came to, to, to bring peace. 
In fact, that's what Luke has already told us. Remember that when we were in chapter 2 and we saw the angels coming and announcing his birth to Mary, they spoke of the coming of Jesus as the coming of peace on earth. And in chapter 10, we saw Jesus sends his disciples out to, to preach the, the kingdom of God and to proclaim, quote, peace. That's what he tells them to proclaim. So what are we to make of verse 51 here when Jesus says, is that what you thought I came to bring? And he says, no, it's not. I think what it means is that while, yes, it is Jesus' saving purpose to bring peace and if we look back in, in Luke 2, what the angel said, peace among those with whom he is pleased, we can certainly say, yes, that is his saving purpose. But we see here that there is also a sad recognition that this message of peace, his message of peace, will in fact prove in reality to be one of division as people respond differently to him. And they choose either to follow him or to reject him. That's actually something that was also predicted at his birth. Back in chapter 2, it says this. Listen carefully, because I'm afraid I don't have it on the screen for you. But it says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thoughts of many hearts may be, excuse me, be revealed. Some will rise, some will fall. So in other words, we could say again, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The message of Christ divides. You say, why? Because it demands. The message of Christ divides because it demands. It demands a humble recognition that I actually need to be saved from my sin. That takes incredible humility. It demands the humble recognition that I am not my own master. That there's a holy and a transcendent God that I'm actually accountable to. And that to follow him means to deny myself. That's what Jesus taught back in Luke chapter 8. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. That requires incredible humility. And not many people will demonstrate that kind of humility. Not many people have that kind of humility to admit their own need to be rescued from their own sin. And here's why. Pride is a pervasive poison that flows through every human heart. Therefore, following Christ will cause divisions. Will cause divisions, even amongst the most intimate of human relationships. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about within a family, right? Mothers and fathers and sons and daughters being divided. The most intimate of relationships. Because my life as a follower of Christ is a testimony against yours if you reject him. My highest allegiance to him is an allegiance that cannot peacefully coexist with an allegiance that denies him and would reject his lordship. So I think what Jesus wants us to understand is, look, 
No matter what other differences or similarities may exist between people, none of them ultimately matter in comparison to this one. There are only two kinds of people in the world. You're either with Christ or you're against him. I'm going to say that again. You're either with him or you're against him. There are two kinds of people in the world. And the question we're to ask is, which one am I? Which one are you? As you ponder that question, Jesus provides us with a test to reveal where our hearts are and where our treasures are found. And it's really the heart of the the second half of chapter 12. Let's read it together. Here's the second point. The two kinds of people, I said, firstly, they're divided by Christ. Secondly, is they're, they're faithful or unfaithful. Two kinds of people, faithful and unfaithful. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, in other words, if he comes in the middle of the night and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So again, I said this is the, really kind of the heart of the passage. This is where the title of my message, Ready or Not, comes from. That's what he's saying. He's saying, ready or not, here he comes. Ready or not, here he comes. The point is pretty straightforward. If our hearts are fixed on what we treasure, then the one who treasures Christ will be watchful and waiting, ready for his return. My, my heart is fixed on him. I am looking for him. I am waiting for him. I'm ready for him. That's an eschatological statement, by the way, right? Again, he's talking about the second coming. Eschatology refers to the last things. Uh, It refers to those things that, that speak to that second coming of Christ to judge the world and to establish his heavenly kingdom here on earth. So his statement that he's making here is, is with that kind of view in mind. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now granted, as he's talking to his disciples here, they have no idea about the second coming of Christ. They have no idea about that. But they still would have had an understanding from the Old Testament prophets about the coming day of the Lord, with a capital D, the day of the Lord. The Old Testament speaks of that event and that moment regularly. So they would have had a a category for this idea of that coming of the Son, the coming of the kingdom, and the coming of the day of judgment. Now we, when we read this on the other hand, we're on this side of Christ's first coming, we're on this side of his death, resurrection, and ascension, and we know because we've heard it told to us that there is a promise that he will one day return in the same way that we saw him go. And we also have been told that Again, that day or hour is not known. 
We cannot know when that will occur, but we know this, it will occur. It will occur. That is our great hope as Christians. And Jesus is alluding to that here. So here's the point, Christians, and don't miss the point. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him, our great treasure, and live our lives in such a way that he could return at any time. And if he does return, that he finds us faithful. We who love the master should keep watch and be ready so that he will find us, as he says here, faithfully executing his will upon his surprise arrival. So an application question for us is this, are you watching and waiting? Are you watching and waiting? Is your life marked by faithfulness to your king who will return at any time? Hear his words again. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Verse 40. So here's my, my prayer. And I hope it's your prayer. May the Lord find us faithful until that very hour. May he find us faithful. Now it's at this point that Peter... Hearing these words, ask a question. Look at verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? So Jesus is talking to the disciples. There's, there's the 12 in front of him, and then there's the, a whole crowd behind them. And, and Peter's like, is this, for, is this for us who are Christians, like your disciples, those who are following you? Or is this a, a parable or a story that you're telling here for everyone? Now, Jesus doesn't answer his question directly. He doesn't say whether it's just for them or for everyone, but his answer makes clear that all people are the master's servants. All people. And all are potentially disciples. So as one commentator uh, said, and I think it was, it was pretty clever, uh, as we read this next section of the text, if the shoe fits, wear it. All right? If the shoe fits, wear it. Here's Jesus' answer, verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to him they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So you see here the contrast between the faithful and the unfaithful servant of the master, right? And that contrast 
is really quite obvious. But I want you to notice the ones whom Jesus most forcefully condemns here. It's those who know the Master's will, who know the Master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will. Who's he referring to? This is where I think he's answering Peter's question. He's referring to, first of all, his audience. Remember his audience here, he's speaking to Jewish people. And perhaps especially to those who are in positions of spiritual leadership. So I think he's saying if the law and the prophets point to the coming day of the Lord, then you know, you've heard the will of the Master. And those who have heard yet ignore those warnings are surely those who are most worthy of God's judgment, of his punishment. In the next chapter, chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable that illustrates the point. You probably just have to look over to the right side of your page. Chapter 13, verse 6. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He said something similar already about the Jews who rejected him throughout the towns of Galilee. Remember when we were in Luke chapter 10, he said this. He said, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. If you've heard, you know the Father's will, and you've not lived and acted accordingly, then it will be worse for you. I think there's an important application for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Having been in the church, having been exposed to the word of God, but do not live according to the word that we regularly hear. And I think there's particular warning to those of us who serve in positions of teaching and leadership within the ministry, but neglect and abuse the people of God that we're called to feed and we're called to serve. Jesus is saying here, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And trees are known by their fruit. Trees are known by their fruit. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes. This is yet another call to respond to Christ in repentance and faith, right? We've talked about that so much. Luke's been keying in on that idea so much. We repent by admitting we've sinned against our maker and our master by treasuring lots of other things above him. We admit that. We confess that we're wrong to ignore him and we turn towards him for forgiveness and cleansing. That's repentance. But we also see this, repentance is revealed. In other words, it is proved genuine. You you can know if repentance is real repentance in your life by the lives of obedience that follow. Those who look to Christ keep looking to Christ. Those who look to Christ keep looking to Christ. We watch 
And we wait for his return, actively committed to his will with an eager expectation of his coming. And that's no burden to those who truly see the master for who he is. That's our joy. Listen, when we talk about this, when Jesus talks in terms like this, I know it can, it can sometimes cause us to say, wait, aren't we saved by, by grace? We're not saved by our works, right? We're saved by the mercy and grace of God. It is his initiative. It is his work. It's not something we merit. So when we hear stuff like this and we talk about the, the, the reward and the punishment for those lives that are faithful versus unfaithful, it could be a little bit confusing. But don't be confused. The, the, the gospel is very clear on this. Yes, you are saved by grace. It is an act of God. It is not something you merit. But your salvation changes your heart. And it is demonstrated in your obedient life that follows. You couldn't obey God before a new heart, but with a new heart, you can. And that's how we know. Trees are known by their fruit. And a holy life is what we're called to. Don't forget that. Cherish the grace of God. Cherish the grace of God that covers your sin over and over again. But respond joyfully to that grace with a willingness to say, I'm devoted to you. I'm devoted to you. That's what he's calling us to. And if we see him for who he is, that's our joy. The problem with sin, though, is, of course, it keeps us from seeing him for who he really is. It keeps us from seeing Christ for who he really is. And so that's my third point. That's the third section here that we're going to look at here. So remember, the first point was there are two kinds of people, and they're divided by Christ. Secondly, there are two kinds of people revealed in their faithfulness versus unfaithfulness. Here's the third point. There's one kind of master. There's one kind of master, and he is just, and he is good. The heart that treasures the things of this world can't see that. The heart that treasures the things of this world can only see the true master as a threat to their own personal pursuit of happiness apart from him. And what we'll see next week is that the gate is wide that leads to that destruction. Right? If I'm, if I'm treasuring anything and everything but him, then he's a threat to me. You know, so many of our neighbors are gathering this weekend over on Clark Street to celebrate their lives lived apart from Christ. And we're going to see that play out over and over again, very publicly in our city over the coming weeks as we go through these summer festivals. I, that's one of the things that saddens me so much, you know, as we we have these great festivals and, and food and drink and all these cool things that you can go participate in. And yet so often it just seems like this declaration of we're celebrating life apart from Christ. It's heartbreaking. And if we were to go over there and proclaim the message of Luke 12, I fear that most would respond to what we say by saying something like this. Here's the objection. I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to be a servant. Especially not to some quick-tempered, pugnacious, belligerent master who threatens to punish me for not obeying him. I think that's a typical response. And perhaps 
That's been your attitude towards God. You only see him as a divine judge who's just sort of waiting to catch you in your sin. Ha! Ha! Right? So he can cut you down. And if that's the way we view God, then following him doesn't feel very life-giving, does it? It feels like a burden. So what does Jesus say to you in this chapter that speaks to your heart? There's two things. We've already read them. But in what we've read, the first response is this. You already are the master's servant. You don't get to choose whether or not you are a servant of the master. He's the master. He's the maker. He's the creator of the world. He is the transcendent God who is above all. All things consist in him, right? You you don't choose whether or not you are his servant. Acknowledgement of the master is not optional. Remember what Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no escaping that. That is either a confession of incredible joy or incredible fear. There's only two kinds of people. And God is just because he is the maker. Because he is the only one who is worthy of worship. He is right and just to condemn rebels. He would not be good if he were not just. And he is just. But he's also good. He's also good. Here's the response continued. Not only are you already the master's servant, but he's anything but belligerent. He's anything but pugnacious. This master comes to serve his servant. Did you pick that up? Look back at verse 37. This is an amazing thing, right? He's talking about, you know, blessed are those who are awake when the master returns and the master finds faithful. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, who's he? The master will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table and he will come and serve them. What kind of master do we have a master who came to seek and to serve? It's incredible. This is no belligerent master. This is a gracious, merciful, compassionate master who comes to serve his servants. And how does he come to serve his servants? Look back at verse 49. Remember, this is what we opened with. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. How does he come to serve his servants? He's telling us here. He's talking about a baptism that he has yet to endure. This is not the baptism that he already had through John the Baptist. This is looking forward to his baptism at the cross. And he's saying, this is what I came to do. 
And you see the eagerness in his voice. I wish that it were already kindled this fire. He's distressed about what he's going to endure, but you can also tell he's, he's sort of anxious to, to see it happen. There's a longing in Jesus. I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to the cross. That's where I fulfill my purpose. That's where I serve my servants. That's where I die. On the cross to what? To bear the judgment of God. The just and righteous judgment of God for sin in the stead of his servants. He is just. Sin will be punished, but he is so good. Jesus takes the punishment for his own. And when we see him for who he is, he is just and he is good. Then our forgiven hearts can begin to look with longing and waiting for that master to come. Oh, come Lord Jesus. That's the biggest application of all. Look to Christ. What a good and gracious master he is. He gives two other applications that I want to cover quickly, though, because they're important. And the first one is this. If all this is true, if, if we're listening to what he's saying and we're taking it to heart, then we have to do this. Interpret the time accurately. This speaks to response, right? Look at verse 54. He tells a couple other uh, uh, teachings and, and, and parables here. He says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Here's what he's asking us. He's saying, look, you are, yes, you are so good at looking at the things around you and interpreting them and understanding what that means for your life. Do I need to take an umbrella with me to work today? Oh, yep, there's rain clouds. I probably should do that. You're so good. And, and we do that all across the board in the way that we live our lives, right? We look forward and we, we forecast and we see signs and it, it tells us how should we save or spend our money or what decisions we should make or you know, all kinds of things. We're so good at that. And yet I think what he's asking is, are you viewing the events around you with earthly eyes, or, or sort of the eyes of earthly-minded men only, or are you looking at the things around you through the lens of God's redemptive history? If you're good at figuring out what this thing means about how you spend your money or whether you take an umbrella, are you looking around at life and understanding that there is a God, a master whom you are accountable to, and he's coming, the day of judgment is coming, and will you respond to him? Look around. I was thinking about that this week. You know, we can, we can look around and sometimes we can, we can deceive ourselves because things are good and things are prosperous. But, but I've lived long enough to know that seasons of prosperity and peace are short-lived. 
they're short-lived, right? And just a couple of years ago, we were, we were probably thinking, you know, at least like on economic terms and sort of global security concerns, things were relatively at ease. Not, na- not now. That was quick, right? So what does that tell you? It ought to tell you this, that the world is in a continual cycle of decline and decay. Why? Because sin is rampant, and this ain't all there is. If you can't interpret that by looking around at the world around you, you're missing it. And Jesus is saying, don't be so blind. This world is telling you there's a problem. And my coming is telling you that God has a solution. Are you paying attention? Secondly, not just interpret the time accurately, but then respond. Get off the fence. Verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, there may be some good secondary application here about legal strategy if you ever get accused or sued, but that's not the point of what he's saying here. The point is really simple of what he's saying here. Here's the point. You're all on your way to see the judge. We are all on our way to see the judge, so settle up before it's too late. Interpret the time accurately get off the fence respond settle up before it's too late how do we settle up with him again we recognize our need we humbly come and say i am not my own master i mean i've tried but boy i've made a mess of my life i need christ i'm a sinner who stands accused before a holy god but i have a Savior in Jesus Christ who takes the wrath of God for me. Oh, to trust in him. Thank you. Oh, to trust in him. God is just to deal with your sin. But in dealing with your sin on his own son, he demonstrates he is good and merciful and kind. settle up with him. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the good news of the gospel that we get to come back to again and again. And be reminded, Lord, that you so love the world that you sent your son that whoever would believe in him, trust in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you for the cross of Christ where our sins were paid for. Thank you for Jesus bearing the weight of all of that offense that in him we would be washed clean, made new, given new hearts. And I pray, Lord, that as his righteousness has been imputed to us, Lord, that 
the outflow of that would be righteous lives, Lord. Teach us to treasure you, to live for you, Lord, to live holy lives, that we don't take for granted this gift of salvation, knowing that, Lord, if we're taking it for granted, we may not have it. But if we do have it, Lord, to respond to you with joyful obedience because you are worthy. Thank you for who you are. Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.